Well, you may have heard me say this before, but we do not merely believe in God. We are not deists. Now, while we are monotheists, we are not your average run-of-the-mill monotheists. We are not monotheists the way Jews are monotheists or the way Muslims are monotheists. We are Trinitarians. We believe in one God who exists as three persons. Or, to put it differently, we believe in three persons who, in their mutual relations, just are the one God. Now, as we did last week, we're not going to try this morning to like probe the inner life and being of God, the Trinity in its own existence. We're not going to do that this morning, though all of eternity will be spent gazing into that light. What we're going to do here is what we did last week, is repair to the works of God, to the Trinity, if you will, as the triune God is toward you. Because there it's easier, right? It's given to us by God to see his hand, if you will, his face, to see the splendor of the triune God more readily in his works. So in particular, we're going to look, this is the second week in a row we're doing this, we're going to look at the Trinity at work in our salvation, in our salvation. So we'll do this this morning from our New Testament lesson from Titus chapter 3. This is one of those dense texts of Paul. Um, The more time I spend with it, the more grand it becomes. It has actually been called the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament. It's remarkable, right? I think if someone asks us, what's the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament? We might not think, oh, that's Titus 3. But it really is hard to get a more compact and luminous statement than this. So I'm going to make five points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. When, what, why, how, and then the end or the goal. So let's begin with when. There's a certain time. The text speaks of a time. When we were without God and without hope in the world. But this is not the when we're going to talk about. Right? It's, it's, you might call it the bleak backdrop to the when which shines forth in this text. We were enslaved. Then verse 4 says, but when. That's the when I want to talk about. The when in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, some, some Bible translations will say goodness and loving kindness of God. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Like there's a decisive appearance in history with Jesus Christ. This is what Paul calls earlier in the same book of Titus. He speaks of the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation for all people. Now, it's not like God was not loving and kind and gracious in the Old Testament. Of course he was. But there's a decisive, radical, epochal invasion or appearance of this in Jesus Christ. Something happens, kindness appears, bringing salvation for all people. 
And when we're talking of God here, we're talking, when we see the word God without any qualifier, we can take it usually to be the Father. So the when in the text then is the time that the Father has sent the Son. The time in which God has appeared in Jesus Christ, or even more precisely, as Jesus Christ. It's these last days. Remember the book of Hebrews, how it opens? In the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets many different times in many different ways. But in these last days, decisively, finally, he has spoken his last and full complete word in his son. That places us in the when or the time of the text. But look at the lovely manner in which this is stated. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Kindness is behind this. In humans, kindness is the fruit of the Spirit. right? Working deep in the soil of one's soul. And we desperately need more of it. In the ancient world, kindness was often considered the highest virtue of a deity or of a human ruler. I mean, think of that. Kindness as the highest virtue of a human ruler. Here, here, it carries the idea of God's patient goodness, his generosity, his pity, his pitying concern for you. It's the kindness of God which leads us, Paul says, to repentance. Right? This, is, this is truly wondrous. It's a beautiful thing. This is how God brings us to repentance and to new life. Right? We, are, we are rarely scared or threatened into the kingdom of God. We are also rarely argued into the kingdom of God. What usually happens is God kills us with his kindness. Kindness is a chief part of the glory of God. You want to see how crucial, how important kindness is to God? Listen to these words of Jesus. You're familiar with them. We went over them in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. But he says this, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Why is that? Why is loving your enemies, doing good to your enemies, lending to people without expecting return, why, why does that accumulate a great reward and make me or you a child of the Most High God? Because, Jesus says, that's his next word, he, your Heavenly Father, is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Anybody can be kind to the kind. It is a uniquely divine trait to show kindness to ingrates. And it's a uniquely divine reflection of that for us to do the same. 
so important is kindness that Ephesians 2, verse 7, says this. God raised us up, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Why? So that, Paul says. There's, a, there's one of those so that's. The so that's in Paul are real important. They, they tell you the end, the goal of what's going on. So that. Why did God save us? Why did God seat us with Christ in the heavens? Why? In order that, in the coming ages... Well, wait a minute, Paul. I mean, I'm not really too worried about the coming ages. I'm worried about today, you know. I'm worried about right now. He seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is a remarkable text. It's giving you the rationale for why God saved you. So that for all eternity, God could demonstrate or show his kindness, his fatherly goodness to us in Christ. So not only does God's kindness lead us to repentance, this kindness will be lavished on you and displayed unto all eternity. It is the goal of being redeemed in Jesus Christ. And the kindness of God here in our text is coupled with his love. Right? The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, Paul says. The word here for love is philanthropia. So it's basically what we know as philanthropy. Philanthropy, which means the love of mankind. Now, we seem to have been afflicted in the modern world with philanthropists who love mankind and hate actual flesh and blood human beings. But God is the great lover of the human race, right? Individually and collectively. He's the great philanthropist. When the kindness and the philanthropy of God appeared, that is the time. That was inaugurated with Christ, and it's the time we are still in. It's the time of our text. It's the already and the not yet. It's the time of the kingdom breaking into this fallen world. That's the when. So secondly, what did God do at this time? This is really easy. It's in verse 5. It says, he saved us. This is actually the main subject and verb. Subject and verb of this whole long sentence. Verses 4 through 7 are one long sentence in the Greek. So this is the whole text in a nutshell. Whole text in a nutshell. He saved us. Once and for all, notice past tense, saved. Finished. And that does not mean, that does not mean that this is just about initial salvation. Right? We, we have this thing in us, like, you know, it's deep in our DNA. We talked about it at the VBS. Um, we, we're we're kind of good with God saving us by grace initially. After that, we want to contribute. This is a definitive action by God which secures your destiny. Salvation is not a cooperative arrangement. It is a mighty intervention of God's love and kindness. 
to people enslaved and deceived and curved in on themselves. God saves us in spite of ourselves, in the teeth of our persistent selfishness and sin and evil. And certainly, as the text continues, and certainly not, notice this in the text, not because of the righteous deeds we've done. Salvation is not based on our righteous deeds. In and of themselves, they're just filthy rags anyway. And by the way, beloved, this is in a book, Titus, which six times in three short chapters, six times Titus will exhort us to be zealous for good works. Good works are commanded, and they'll be evaluated. But it is at the heart of Scripture, and it is at the heart of the Reformation, to grasp that salvation from beginning to end. As the children learned, the solas at the DBS this week, salvation from beginning to end is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from, not on the basis of, works. Right? There are really two kinds of religion in the history of the world. Some form of works righteousness and, and, and the Reformation faith. Those are the two. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. To the extent that it's from you, it's not a gift. To the extent that it's a gift, it's not from you. And it's not by works, Paul goes on to say. Not by works. Why? So that no one can boast. Like if you see boasting, you can guess that underneath that boasting, there's a kind of self-righteousness. Well, I'm the right kind of Christian, or we're the right kinds of Christians, or we're doing it the right way, and those people aren't. And we forget this, right? We forget this. It is not of us. It is not by works. There is to be no boasting. There's no ground for boasting in the Christian life. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He saved us. So we shall be found in him, Paul says. This is in Philippians. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law. If you're going to try and derive your righteousness from Torah keeping, you're going to be in trouble. But, he says, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the continual teaching, right, of the apostolic scriptures. Here's Romans 11. Romans 11 trying to explain why there is an elect remnant. Paul says this, and if it's by grace then it cannot be based on works. Notice the contrast, right? If it's by grace, it cannot be by works. If it were, Paul says, grace would no longer be grace. But can't we slip just a little works? If you do that, right, if you mix grace and works on the matter of salvation, you destroy grace. Right. Works righteousness is like arsenic. It just takes a little bit in your glass of water and the whole glass of water is ruined. 2 Timothy chapter 1. He has saved us and called us not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 
And when did we receive this grace? He says there in 2 Timothy, this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the worlds began. It's really rooted in the doctrine of election. He saved us. Once and for all, he saved us. Period. That's the what. Then the third thing here is why. Why does God save us? This also is simple. It's in the middle of verse 5. Because of or by his mercy. His mercy. Mercy is, is his pity for us in our need, in our distress. God is drawn toward our need. We tend to think, well, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I have all these needs. This must be repellent to God, and he must be running away from me. It's a a grotesque distortion of the being of the God who's appeared in Jesus Christ, whose mercy floods into our need. God is full of pity. Mercy flows from the most merciful God. The one who, remember, when his glory passed by Moses, here's what he declared. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So it's a delightful thing, right? Along with kindness, this text teaches us that mercy is also a chief feature, a chief feature of God's glory. And we're repeatedly taught this. His mercy is over all his works. His mercies are new every morning. He's merciful in all his ways. He's the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And thus Jesus can also command in that same Sermon on the Mount, be merciful. As your heavenly father is merciful. You know what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, this is also in Romans chapter 9. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Why? How do we explain the transition? Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now, in this time, in this when, you have received mercy. As the hymn puts it, tis mercy all immense, immense and free. And that brings us to the fourth point, how? How did God save us? Or what does this mercy in action look like? And it's right here that it's a little easier for us to see this, this flowering, this unfolding of the work of the whole Trinity in our salvation. So let's say it again. The Father saves us. Through the Spirit and the Son. Through what Irenaeus, the second century father, called his two hands. He saves us, Paul says here, through the washing of rebirth and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Right? It's the work of the Spirit to wash, to quicken, to renew. We saw this all last week in John chapter 3. To move you from enslavement to salvation. To raise us from death to life. This is known as our regeneration or our recreation in Christ. The Spirit does not seek to adjust us. He seeks to remake us. And he already now places us in the realm of the new creation. These are startling claims, really. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
And so now, by the Holy Spirit, the Christian lives in and lives out of the new creation. So look at verse 6. It says, The Spirit was given to us, poured out on us generously, or richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Spirit is given to us by the risen and ascended Christ. The Father saves us, and He does so by sending the Spirit through the Son. That's the whole sermon. The first nutshell is He saved us. But if we want to expand it just a little, we could say the Father saves us, and He does so by sending the Spirit through the Son, through the risen Son. This is exactly what Peter says on Pentecost. Listen to Peter's sermon from Acts 2. He says, he's speaking of Christ, and he says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. Right? The Son receives the Spirit from the Father, pours the Spirit out on the church. And you can hear the allusion to Pentecost here in our text in Titus. In the language of the Spirit being poured out. Poured out. For God is not miserly. He pours the Spirit out profusely in His generosity, in His kindness, in His mercy, in His love. And He does that through the crucified and now raised Christ. He gives you the Spirit. And that Spirit unites you to Jesus Christ so that you might return to the Father. And so now, the picture becomes complete. We can see in this short little piece of text, the three persons working in utter unity as one, in love and kindness and in mercy to affect your renewal. The Father saves you by sending the Spirit through the Son. So the fifth and the final point. Okay, what's the goal of this? What is the end of Trinitarian salvation? We've already seen one end. One end is that God can display his kindness to you in the coming ages. But here I'm going to look at another end. Look at verse 7. The result of the gift of the Spirit is that through faith we are justified by grace. So here we have an important addition to this rebirth or renewal. Here Paul says we are justified, and this is a legal term. It means we're acquitted. It means we are counted as righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. This too was at the heart of the Reformation. In justification, the judgment of the last day has already been pronounced over you, and you have already been found not guilty. Therefore, there is now... No condemnation, another legal term, for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, we live in a, lo- in a time where there's a lot of confusion about salvation and, the- and about justification in particular, even among Protestants, even among allegedly Reformed Protestants. Now, there's a lot we could say here, but I want you to notice this. Notice how full and how balanced Paul is. Notice what we have in this text. We have renovation. Renovation, renewal, washing and renewal. That is sanctification. That's what we call sanctification. But we also have legal standing. We are justified by grace. We have both things here. Interior renovation and legal acquittal. 
And we need both things, beloved. And I'll tell you why we need both things. We need both things because sin, which has infected us all and corrupted us all, right? Sin has a twofold profile guilt and corruption, right? Legal guilt and the, the corruption of your personal nature. Justification deals with your guilt, sanctification deals with your corruption. Sanctification and justification. Transformation and legal vindication. These things are distinct, but they are inseparable, and you get them side by side in union with Jesus Christ, and you see them that way right here in this text. All of this, all of this marvelous free salvation, so great a salvation, is so that we might become heirs having or according to the hope of eternal life. That's how the text ends. So, notice, I never tire of pointing this out, I know, because it's everywhere. God did not save us for some merely this-worldly social, cultural, or political ends. Though it often sounds like it. He saved us for communion with himself and everlasting glory, and we should not be people who confuse means and ends. Which is here, the end is here put like this, that we might be heirs having the hope of eternal life. So I want to break this into two parts, heirs and eternal life. So heirs. Here's the thing with heirs. They don't yet have their inheritance. They are destined to inherit. That's what makes them an heir. They have, what do we have? We have a pledge. We have the foretaste of our inheritance in the spirit. We have already begun to taste. We've already begun to participate in the grand inheritance that is ours, which is namely life with the triune God in the new creation. But we have just the beginning of it. We have just a down payment. Now, amidst the sufferings of this age, we live in hope. Right? Paul says this in Romans 8. He puts it this way. You're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may share in his glory. So as heirs, we do not yet have the inheritance. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? He says that flesh and blood, this stuff, as currently constituted, flesh and blood before the bodily resurrection cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And thus our second point here is that we are heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now here, notice, notice the accent, as it so often is in Paul, is wholly, completely future. It's not half future, it's 100% future. Yes, we have eternal life begun in us now. We have eternal life begun in us now. But Paul is not talking about that here. He's talking about something possessed by hope. He's talking about having the hope of eternal life. He's talking about consummated life in the eschaton. This is the purpose of all of this. This is the goal. The bringing to completion... The granting of our full inheritance is in view here. 
So think of it this way. Eternal life here means the life of eternity. The full possession of the life of God in your glorified humanity. The New Testament literally points us to this something like 318 times. Here's how the very book of Titus, the same book that we're reading from, right? Here's how it opens. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This is so deep in Paul's DNA and in the apostolic DNA. Paul labors for the elect. Why? In the hope of eternal life. That's why he can say things to his churches like, I pray that in the day of Christ I have not labored in vain. Or I want to present you blameless in the day of Christ. Paul's always thinking, I'm going to stand before God in the day of resurrection. And I want to be able to point to the churches that I've shepherded. And, 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 and have God say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want them to be prepared to stand on that day. So he labors for the elect in the hope of the eternal life. And here in this text, he says, the triune God saves us that we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. This eschatological glory this communion with, worship of the Trinitarian Savior, this is why we do all that we do. To this end, Paul says in Timothy, to this end we strive and labor and toil because we have our hope set on the living God. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. And then what does he say next? Take hold of the eternal life to which you have called. In other words, he's saying, grab this eschatological vision in life now. Orient yourself to it. This is, how, this is what it means to fight the good fight in this age. In other words, the triune God does all these things to bring us fully. Fully here means, beloved, by sight and not by faith. By sight and not by faith. As long as you're in the mode of doing things by faith, we're in this age, not in the age to come. We want all the things we speak of here, all the things we do there, all the things we proclaim, we want them by sight. I think we forget this. I think we'd be happy just to win the midterms. You know, that'll satisfy us for a few months anyway. But we want to see Jesus and the Father and the Spirit in their eternal splendor. And Paul is telling you this over and over and over and over. Lay hold of this. You fight for this. You're called to this. This is the hope you have. Full possession. Not by hope, but full possession of the triune God in covenant communion In glory, new creatures in the new creation, renewed creatures in a renewed cosmos. We're happy to paint around the edges. Renewed creatures in a renewed cosmos, that's the hope of eternal life. That the same love, that the same kindness which saved us might be lavished on us for the ages to come. Think about that. 
I would bet you could take a hundred Christians and ask them all, what is the goal? What are you to do now that you are saved? What, why did God save you? You'd get an array of answers. But again, you're not likely to get the answer because he wants to lavish his kindness on his bride in the heavenly places in all the coming ages. That's why he saved us. Ages in which the grand preoccupation of the redeemed will be the Trinitarian mystery in all of its splendor. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian Savior. Amen.